This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Now then, as they say in these parts, how's it going? Welcome to another Hot Four podcast. What the hell was that? <laughs> that was my bad impression of someone from Liverpool, because I'm sure, like many of you, you've descended on Liverpool this week, home of the Fab Four, the ferry across the Mersey, and host to the annual SEBA BRX conference. Um, it was much easier SEBA when you were in Sheffield. I'll leave that with you. Anyway, if you're at the conference over the next couple of days and you see me floating around in a flap cap with a pair of headphones, a hearing aid and a bunch of recording gear, probably with a beer in hand, uh, then come and say hello. Um, I've been reading Brew Britannia by Jessica Boak and Ray Bailey recently, which delves into how SIBA came about. I know SIBA splits opinions quite drastically amongst brewers and with any organisation. There are good things and bad things about it, but... It's what we've got to work with, and for what it's worth, I love coming to the conference each year and tasting all the beers. And and this year, I've got two beers in the final, an American Pale Ale called Get This Then Outdoors, and a breakfast stout, which was infused with cold brew coffee from a local coffee roaster. All kinds of specialty malts, milk sugar, which was meant to be like the milk on your cereal, and, get this, smoked malt which was meant to be like the sausages. It was absolutely lush. Uh, But now that I've left the Sheffield Brewery Company, I hope that's done me well, Marv, brewing these for competition. Because if we win, I'll stand up there and share all the glory. But if you lose, then it's because you changed my recipes. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Anyway, uh, the podcast this week is an interesting one. So I get this email from a Willie Main, who is a brewer in Northern Ireland. Man, we're all over the impressions this week, aren't we? Uh, saying that if I wanted to, he could share a load of stuff about how difficult it is being a brewer in that part of the world because um, of all these different reasons why, which I'm not going to share now because he'll go into the podcast. And having read that email, I was like, yeah, that sounds crazy. So I hooked up with Willie over the magic of the Tinterweb and we talked about everything from running a brewery with limited outlets, being subject to arcade laws and the state of things with Brexit. Uh, now, if you're enjoying these podcasts, I want you to do something for me. Please, 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 Can you share it on your social media feed and with any friends in the brewing and beer industry that you might know, whether you work in a brewery or in a pub or a bottle shop or whatever, or just crappier devotees like me, uh, you can help Hop Forward, Hop Forward by sharing it with other people. And you can like and follow us on social media at Hop Forward Beers. Uh, So on that note, crack open a beer. Um, I'm drinking this lovely Imperial Stout that I brewed recently which is, in my opinion, fantastic. I'm going to say it's good, but you'll just have to take my word for it. One day, I'll be able to pour beer down the computer and it'll go straight to your iPhone or whatever and you'll get to taste it. If I did that at the moment, pouring beer on my computer, only bad things are going to happen. So so on that bobbyshell, let's hop into today's episode with Willie from Bullhouse Brew Co., My guest today on the podcast is uh, Willie Main from Bullhouse Bruco, just outside of Belfast in Northern Ireland. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Nick, for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on. Uh, I want to, before we launch into the main bulk of the podcast, I'm, I'm really excited about this episode because it's um, going to be super interesting. But uh, why don't you just give us a bit of background as about who you are and what kind of setup you've got at the brewery there? Yeah, uh, well, I was a home brewer turned pro um, back in 2016. Uh, started with a two and a half barrel setup. Uh, the brewery is called Bullhouse. Uh, I grew up on a farm, so the uh, brewery is established in uh, one of the old bull sheds. Um, so started out two and a half barrel, pretty rudimentary kit that I bought off another local brewery, and that was upgrading. Uh, I was doing that uh, alongside working full time. Mm. Did that for about eighteen months, and then the kind of eighty, ninety hour weeks kind of take a toll after a while and <laughs> um, ended up 
I actually moved jobs so I could have flexible hours. Uh, so I started at seven in the morning and then I was back home or leaving work at half three, able to sometimes brew in the evening then, but then you're not getting finished until 1 a.m. and then back in for seven the next yeah, morning. Yeah, gosh. Um, but then, uh, yeah, it kind of came to a head with work. So I ended up kind of doing a bit too much beer related stuff. Uh, you know, ordering ingredients and stuff whenever I had a bit of downtime in work. Uh, so then I got suspended on full pay for oh, a, no. a week. So I was like, happy, happy days. And then I got suspended on full um, pay. Yeah, on full pay. Yeah. <laughs> so then, uh, so that funded more multiple hops, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, week of being off, then I was able to like work on the brewery full time. And I was like, right, I probably can make a go with this if I, if I kind of just take the leap of faith. Um, so then I, quit the full-time job in November 2017 to go full-time uh, or September 2017 to go full-time at the, the brewery so it's been full-time ever since so we're now doing kind of six barrel batches a thousand liters just uh consolidated used to have kind of old open top FVs with uh kind of dish bottom right okay, uh, yeah. kind of uh went away from that um over Christmas, got a couple of uni tanks in, so we've got just two two uh, ten heck uni tanks. Nice. Uh, but the plan, uh, putting another order in for two twenty hex um, in the next month or two. So how has that impacted your beer quality and and your fermentations then? Oh, it's been like night and day, really. Um, really? Uh, just uh, the styles of beer that we're trying to brew, like the really hoppy peels and hoppy IPAs and stuff, just. Uh, yeah, it's so much easier now. Even the turnaround time, um, you know, kind of uh, so much more efficient, so much better quality. Uh, the loss, like whenever we were heavily hopping, like we we uh, did an IPA, uh, a New England IPA on the old tanks with the flat bottom uh, and did a 20 gram a litre uh, New England IPA and mm. lost about 300, 400 litres of <laughs> In the hops, um, so it's it's nice to have the conical with the racking arm and and uh, yeah, it's pretty handy. Awesome. So uh, yeah, no, it's just been even like you know checking untapped and stuff. The reviews are averaging probably like three point eight since the new tanks. Uh, but obviously, granted, we've been doing like double IPAs, you know, which are going to score more yeah, highly totally. um, compared to kind of. 3.5 3.6 beforehand so nice so you got in touch with me to share something about what i imagine most of our listeners on this side of the irish sea would probably be completely unaware of so what why don't you unpack some of the difficulties that brewers face in northern ireland trying to make ends meet yeah well it's i i guess i was over in at the brew dog uh beer thing in november uh speaking to a few english breweries and Scottish breweries and so on telling them about uh, what we have to go through and most of the people couldn't believe it um, so I guess the main thing for us is that we can't uh, get a premises license so we can't open up tap rooms um, speaking to most of the small breweries in England especially uh, a lot of guys make kind of 80 well 70 80 percent of their revenue at the tap room and mm. uh, which is a lovely kind of cash uh, source of income where you're not having to wait for people to pay and chase people up, all the rest. Um, so we can't actually get a premises license. Uh, and on top of that, 96% of pubs in Northern Ireland are tied uh, either to Diageo, CNC, uh, or Molson Coors. So we're uh, pretty, there's only about, there's well, there's 34 beer brands in Northern Ireland. There's 28 uh, physical breweries all competing for kind of 15 uh, taps, rotational taps around kind of greater Belfast. Oh um, then on top of that, there's no history of cask. Uh, really, there's only four pubs. There's there's four Weatherspoons pubs that we can sell cask into if you want to sell cask at 56 quid a cask. Or uh, there's four pubs that'll pay kind of standard good pricing for uh, cask eel um, but apart from that uh, that's it so there's no so what's it like a little bit further field out, outside of sort of great Belfast uh, but there's not much there's not, well uh, in up in the northwest Derry Long Derry there's a few pubs have a few rotational taps up in the north coast uh, one of the breweries up there Lakata made some inroads in local restaurants 
because the restaurants aren't usually as tied. Yeah. Uh, so then you're not going to get the same volume, but it's kind of, there is an opportunity there to, to put a tap in. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, kind of rural Northern Ireland, there's not much going on. Most of the breweries then, all the breweries do most, uh, well, probably 50% of their volume at least in small pack. Yeah. Um, which for a startup brewery, it's it's uh, quite hard because obviously it's labor intensive uh, without it or, or else, uh, you know, very capital intensive to buy good, decent equipment to bottle or can. So, um, yes, it's it's a tricky one, but uh, probably I would say breweries in Northern Ireland have a lot smaller volumes of beer. Uh, You get more revenue per litre, I guess, in small pack. Right. Um, So doing more small pack has its advantages that way, but it's, uh, you know, standing there. We have a, a manual canning machine. We're canning ten cases an hour, two of us uh, wow. standing there. So you're using like a, what, like a beer gun or something in a seamer or? Uh, no, it's a forehead, uh, forehead filler. Right. It's actually from California. There's a, a wine filling company that have um, started doing like open fill canning machines. Right. Um, so it's a bit like the cask MCS. Well, I did a lot of research into like kind of small budget canning machines, um, and this one kind of was about a quarter of the price of the cask one, which was the only other one I could see on the market. Um, so no, it's, it's been good so far, but it's just uh, tedious spending a whole day standing, uh, freezing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's very uh, operator dependent on you know, the O levels and all the rest. So uh, you have to properly concentrate the whole time. Yeah. So you need, after every hour, you kind of need to have a 10 minute break just to, to relax and uh, focus for the next hour coming up. Wow, gosh! I mean, th- thirty-four breweries competing for fifteen draft lines—that's that's insane. Like, how often are you on rotation? Well, you'd be on. So the pubs are are fairly busy. That because any kind of craft beer lovers in Northern Ireland only then have fifteen places that they can yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the pubs are fairly busy, um, and yeah, we'd be on. Most weeks would be on maybe two or three of the pubs on rotation. Um, so the pub will get through, say, three kegs over the weekend. Right. Uh, but then that particular pub, then you might not be in for two or three weeks, and then you'll be back. Going. So it's uh, and most of the breweries get a turn. I guess the pubs uh, kind of want to help all the local breweries. Yeah, which is pretty good. But uh, and it means you're you know waiting a bit longer for your next turn as more breweries come onto the scene. So that's got to be a little bit more stressful when you're doing your sales calls, right? To be, to yeah. be thinking, if you know, if you if you don't get a good week, then it's kind of like, you know, it's yeah, not like it's like we we used to have a distributor, um, and then got rid of the distributor for for Northern Ireland, and just well, I had a distributor whenever I was full time in work because obviously it made sense, but then being full time at the brewery, uh, I had a guy Mick who helps who's been canning uh, with me brewing a little bit and uh, doing deliveries and so on and um, so we got rid of the distributor and then we can negotiate with the bars or and so on so we can call up on a monday morning and then uh, you know say kind of work out what our weekly target is and then uh ring people until you hit your target yeah. so that's our, that's pretty much our monday morning wow so how much of a thirst is there for craft beer in northern ireland and what's the uh, sort of go-to pint for most people? For most people over there, well, the demands there uh, uh, from the public, um, but market share is still only kind of less than one percent, I would say, um, just because the the multinationals have a vice-like grip on the, the tide, you know, on the, the pub trade. Mm. There's a few the pubs that do like the likes of the Sunflower in Belfast got rid of all their ties, um, so they don't have any Diageo beers or CNC beers, which it, to be in Belfast and not have Guinness on draft is is quite a ballsy move because yeah, a lot of totally. um, but uh, they're flat out, and I, I think it's it's paving the way for other bars to maybe step out and, and do something similar. Um, but yeah, people go to, I, I guess, uh, in terms of Northern Irish beers, Farmageddon have a pretty uh, good uh, kind of widespread uh, range in Northern Ireland. Like most small towns and so on, you'll find bottles of Farmageddon in the fridge Sorry, somewhere. Farmageddon. Farmageddon, yeah. So they've been around, 
2013. So the kind of craft beer revolution was a bit slower in Northern Ireland. So uh, 2011 was, well, we did have, we had two breweries. We had a brewery opened in the 80s, 1981, I think, Hilden. Um, and then Whitewater opened in the late 90s. And then until 2011, those were the only two kind of breweries. Um, and then since 2011, uh, it's been growing kind of exponentially. But Farmageddon were 2013, I think. So they kind of got good um, first to market, yeah. uh, you know, good uh, brand visibility and so on. Um, and then Boundary are, are quite uh, widely known, probably more so nearly in GB than uh, even in Northern Ireland. Um, and because they're, they're exporting probably at least 80% of the beer outside Northern Ireland. Because um, I guess it depends what your target demographic is. Um, some of the beers, some of the local beers are in Tesco and Sainsbury's and so on as well. Um, the likes of Whitewater and, and uh, Hilden that have been around for a long time. So generally, there's a lot of camaraderie amongst independent brewers. Um, but I would imagine, I mean, what's it like over there if you've got these limited amount of draft lines and more breweries, you know, to fill those than there is space. I mean, does it does that give it a bit more of a competitive edge, or are people sort of still friends and stuff, kind of like sort of seeing okay more? Yeah, everybody's still very good friends. Uh, there's not really any, you know, everybody is knows everybody's in the, everybody else is in the same position. Right. So uh, I think everybody's happy to let other people have their their you know crack at it. Um, the we had, we had kind of an informal group together um, to try and change the licensing legislation. So uh, as a kind of a lobby group for the industry. So I think all the breweries were represented on that. Um, and it's kind of, well, and this was in 2016. Uh, and then just at the start of 2017, then, well, there was a bill going through the local assembly. So we have a devolved government um same as Scotland and, and Wales. Mm. Uh, but then in 2017, uh, the government collapsed, or the devolved assembly collapsed, uh, and we haven't had any government then since then. So that's been about 780 days of no government. So um, the lobby group has kind of fallen by the wayside because there's no real prospect of nobody knows when or if the devolved government will ever get back up and running. Well, there's no one uh, to lobby to, is there? <laughs> Yes, exactly. So uh, there's not really any any point in having that. And um, then if it goes back to direct rule from Westminster, you know, it'll be a, a kind of an English uh, minister looking after affairs. So that will probably be quite low on the priority list, mm. I'd imagine. Maybe more pressing concerns in health and education and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, uh, I don't know when it'll come back onto the table. Um, but well, uh, in the Republic of Ireland, so um, the licensing in the south was a lot more similar to Northern Ireland as it was uh, to GB, um, because I think the licensing was kind of all of Ireland before partition in 1921. The laws haven't really changed since then, um, which shows you how far back they're going. Yeah, gosh. Uh, so the, the pub licenses are, I think, uh, back in the 80s in England, they got rid of the fee for a, a license or a limited amount of licenses. In Northern Ireland, there's 1,800 pub licenses or premises licenses, um, which means each license is worth about 100 grand because you have to wait for a pub to close before you can start a new pub. And that's how they end up getting tied into the contracts because the likes of Diageo will come in and, and offer 100 grand or 150 grand interest-free loan um, to then be tied to... Oh my for, yeah, gosh, yeah. So, because the, the publicans can't afford the 100, 120 grand fee, we know. Uh, well, it's like a vicious so, circle, isn't it? Yeah, but I think back in the 80s in, in GB, then I think the government bought all the licensees out because mm. um, the pubs are lobbying against any change to the law that allows breweries to have tap rooms because... Uh, they think it'll devalue their license. Uh, they think it'll take trade away from the pubs. Um, so they want us to have to pay a hundred grand for a, a full premises license. Um, but even then, at the minute, we can't actually do that because breweries aren't on the list of of uh, 
places that can have a premises license. So you can't so even get a premises license for the brewery at all? No, so you'd have to set up a separate company with a separate address um, for the brewery and then invoice all the beer from the brewery to the bar. Right. So you can't actually have it on this in premises. Um, there's a list of like 12 sorts of businesses that can have a premises license in Northern Ireland, uh, but breweries aren't on that list. But uh, on that list includes uh, Siemens canteens, uh, non-seagoing vessels, and all these other archaic uh, you know, sorts of premises that would have been around maybe in the turn of the 20th century. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so then the Republic of Ireland, they like uh, recently just changed the legislation to allow breweries to have tap rooms um, because they had a similar sort of legislation to us. Um, but the pubs lobbied against it. So the pubs have been uh, fairly successful in their lobbying and the uh, Breweries are only allowed to open a tap room between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m., um, so it's pretty restrictive. And if they have an existing restaurant license, because a lot of pubs will, or breweries will open a restaurant, so then yeah. they can uh, have a restaurant license. But if in the south they're going to have to relinquish their restaurant license if they want to have a new tap room license. Um, but it's it's and I think part of the legislation is that they have people coming to the tap room have to have a tour of the brewery. And they have to have a ticket that they've had a tour of the brewery. Goodness. So it's pretty, you can't just come up, rock up, you know, for on a Friday night for a, a few pints. Without being shown around. <laughs> it's like, I've seen this brewery <laughs> 15 times now. Goodness. So, like, if you can't open a tap room because of the fees and laws, how do breweries in Northern Ireland stay in business? So, well, I guess the, the more successful ones have either, uh, the bigger ones have either sold to the supermarkets in Northern Ireland or uh have exported well uh, i guess boundary is a good example of that uh, or just kept the overheads very low so i'm in a lucky position where our overheads are extremely low so then my break even for the month is pretty low uh but yeah there's not many people making much money it's more uh passion projects and people uh are you know willing to take the slog for maybe five more years until we can get some sort of change um but it's uh, even exporting then is, is tricky because we're kind of isolated from the rest of GB uh, by the the RSC. Yeah. Uh, to the Republic of Ireland, uh, you know, it's intra EU movement of goods. So we actually recently did a, a tour of Ireland uh, at the end of January. Spent a week, uh, had tap takeovers in different cities around the south of Ireland, um, but we had to use a distributor for that because to send beer into the Republic. Um, it's the importer, because it's an intra-EU movement, the importer yeah. paid the duty on it at the duty rate in the importing country. So if you're a bar in Dublin and you want to have a, a Northern Irish beer, you then have to import the beer under EMCS. The Irish government doesn't actually have, like a, you know, the way HMRC have a an online portal for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you're a pub in Dublin, you then have to buy a private software to import the beer. Uh, so then if you're wanting to take maybe two or three kegs off a brewery from Northern Ireland, um, you'd have to do, you know, buy the software, spend all the time to import the kegs. And then uh, you have to, if you're a Northern Irish brewery, then you have to have a guarantor for the move uh, for the duty uh, during transport. So you have to have, a, I think the minimum guarantee is 30,000 quid, which has to be from a financial institution. Um, so there's just a lot of paperwork and headaches to, you know, we can't just drive down to Dublin with a pallet for uh, a, yeah. you know, a van full of uh, kegs and, and flog them around bars. Um, so it's it's not so simple sailing into the south. Uh, and there's a lot of, there's a hundred breweries uh, around Ireland. I think the island of Ireland now, uh, a lot of, really good breweries in the south so it's it's a competitive market down there uh, and you have to then have a distributor to get the beer in the south so uh there's more you know more breweries than there are distributors so it's a it's a tricky one uh, so what about moving beer from the republic of ireland to northern ireland how does it work that way around is it the same or is, same. is that, so okay. the, the distributor you know they have to really have a distributor um and then the distributor has to import the beer, pay the beer duty, and then distribute it to the pubs. Um, you know, otherwise the pubs going to have to import the beer. So, so how, sorry, 
who knows what's going to happen after March 29th. Well, that was my next question, friendly enough. Like, <laughs> how, how do you think Brexit will affect beer coming in and out of Northern Ireland? I don't know. Like, literally, who knows? Uh, it might make things easier. It might make things harder. Uh, I don't know. I can't imagine it will make things easier. But, uh, you know, they're pretty complicated as they are. So I wouldn't want any more complications. Uh, yeah. So we'll see what happens. But um, that's... I guess focusing on the GB market uh, for now, um, I get for us as Northern Irish brewers because the transport costs are quite high to to send beer across the water. Uh, you know we have to have a distributor, uh, mm. so we're kind of actively targeting distributors. And well, you have to find a kind of a target market first. So we're looking at the northwest uh, actually, uh, as it happens. Um, so I think we'll hopefully have a distributor signed up in the next month or so. Um, so when you're looking for a distributor, um, what what you're looking for? How how would you approach one? Um, I, I get a lot of people asking me this question, so I've been trying to set up a podcast episode about this. So it's it's probably well, good, good time, good timing. Yeah. So the one actually for the Republic of Ireland, we spoke to a few because um, we had some interest from bars uh, down south, and we know a guy uh, who's pretty influential in the beer market down south. He started a Franciscan Well brewery down in Cork and they sold to Molson Coors in 20, uh, a few years ago. Um, but he's still in charge of, of uh, Franciscan Well. So he has a lot of contacts in pubs in the south and he uh, kind of set this this trip up for us to do tap takeovers in different cities. And so then... We had previously approached distributors in the Republic of Ireland, and none of them had kind of, you know, they're all kind of want to see that you're bigger than six barrel because our max is very, very max is six barrels a week. Mm. Um, so they'd want to see more volume than that because obviously we're selling stuff in in Northern Ireland as well. We don't really have much left over, uh, and then they want to have uh, consistency as well. Um, yeah. So and and you know, decent kind of marketing budget a lot of the time um, but the, uh, yeah so the, having the bars kind of pulling that through was very helpful so the bars had all agreed to take the beer so we took all the sales out of the distributors hands mm-hmm. so we had a pallet of beer that was already sold to the pubs so all the distributor had to do was take the beer and deliver it to the pubs right. um, so we kind of did all the distributors work for them and they still managed to get 20% but uh, <laughs> that was uh, that's the only way you can do it because you know the pubs can't import it themselves. Yeah. Um, but going to a distributor and saying right, we have a pallet of kegs that's already sold makes things a lot easier. Uh, then I was trying to think well, how can we do that in in GB, and then we had some beer over at Manchester Beer Festival, and uh, there's a guy from Pie Bar in Altrincham uh, had rang me one day and just said, I would try your beer um, at Manchester Beer Festival. Is there any chance we could get some kegs or casks or whatever? Uh, So then I said, we don't actually sell any, we don't have any distribution in in the Northwest, but do you have any distributors you could put us in touch with? So then he gave us a couple of contacts, which then having kind of a hot lead or a warm lead to go in and say, oh, Paul from Pie Bar, you know, said to ring you, uh, et cetera. Then they can go and speak to, you know, the, the bar and, yeah. and work out things from there. I think that is a lot easier to target distributors going in a bit warm, where you've kind of, uh, so maybe try and speak to pubs where. So I was like, my intention was right, St Patrick's Day is coming up next month, so maybe we can uh, try and organise some sort of tap takeover for Paddy's Day, and then go to a distributor and then say, right, we've got this set up. Do you mind distributing it for us? And then if that goes well, then, you know, you're kind of in there with the distributor. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we kind of contacted that. Well, he, he put us in touch with the distributor and then we sent some samples over. And then now I just have to negotiate on pricing and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, but I guess things are looking positive uh, in that respect. So just out of interest, what's it like having Guinness on your doorstep? <laughs> what, as in the Guinness itself? It, it, yeah, as in like you know, because I mean, 
you hear all these stories. I mean, I've never been to Ireland or Northern Ireland, but you hear all these stories of like, oh, you know, a pint of Guinness in Ireland tastes so much better than anywhere else. You know, so obviously, as you said earlier, you get a lot of tourists going over. And I would imagine partly for that reason, you know, to get that Irish experience and, you know, and have a pint of real Guinness. So like what what's what's it like having such a, a major brand practical on your doorstep in Belfast? Um, and how does that sort of impact you sort of being like, we're trying to sell our beer as well? Well, it is hard, it's especially if you try and release. Uh, there's a couple of the local breweries have released a night roof stout, um, trying to kind of compete with Guinness, which is a, is a hard thing to do. Um, Guinness is actually, all their packaging is done in Belfast. So all their canning uh, and bottling and so on is all done up. So they send their beer up in tankers up to Belfast. Right, okay. Uh, I think it's something ridiculous, like three hundred thousand liters a day, or something crazy like that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that so literally is on our doorstep. Um, but yeah, they uh, they have a pretty tight grip on the market. So uh, by law, I think the Competition Markets Authority back in the eighties or nineties said that every every pub had to have at least one free tap. Um, so if it's a tenants pub they always have Guinness as their free tap because right. yeah. no pub wants to do without Guinness. And then if it's a Diageo pub, we'll have tenants or whatever. Um, but yes, yeah, in terms of the actual flavor and, and so on of Guinness, I, uh, I, to be honest, I don't notice, notice much difference. I think they spend uh, so much money on, on their QC and so on and, and their lab work that uh, I've never noticed a difference whenever I've had a pint of Guinness in England or, or elsewhere. Um, but, who knows? Maybe there is a difference. Yeah, it's probably one of those urban legends that they fed out there just to get more people to go to Ireland and go on the brewery tour. Studied, studied in Cardiff and I had a few pints, dodgy pints to Guinness over in Cardiff. Where, but it was actually it was quite nice because they've obviously been sitting on the line for a day or two or whatever, and, and you get a real fruitiness, like funkiness of uh, <laughs> which. Uh, you can tell whenever it's been sitting, been sitting there for a while, or if you go to a hotel and. Uh, you know, it's in a conference, you're at a wedding or something, and then it's in a room that's only used once a week. And you have the, you know, the first pint of Guinness because normally they don't have anything else on offer. Um, and the, you, yeah, you can tell it's been sitting there for a while. Lovely. So to focus on the positives, um, what what's good about being a new wave brewery in Northern Ireland? Um, well, I guess it's uh, there's unlimited potential if if there's change in the licensing legislation. Um, the local people are pretty vociferal in their support for the local breweries because as soon as well most of the local people are looking uh you know local beer fans are looking for different options on the pubs and they're annoyed that they can't get it so then they're very supportive of local breweries and trying to help local breweries as much as possible and so i guess and also being from such a small community of breweries where there's only uh you know 30 odd breweries it's a pretty tight-knit community so it is kind of like very uh, tight knit in terms of sharing information, sharing ingredients. Um, but I know that's the case most most uh, of the world over. But um, yeah, I guess those are the the main positives. Uh, there's not too many other positives. <laughs> so, um, why don't you talk a little bit about the beers you're brewing um, and how they're being received? Uh, yeah, well, we've consolidated our, our core beers down to two. Actually, uh, used to have a few more. The very, very first beer we launched with was an Imperial Stout, uh, which was, in, well, it was 8% Imperial Stout. Good um, shout. Respect. And then we had our second <laughs> second beer was a, a potato-infused uh, Saison. So uh, that was whenever I was like working full-time, so it didn't really matter how many seals I got. Every, every, <laughs> um, but yeah, kind of the two core beers now is uh, a Pale Ale and a, a Session IPA, um, they're fairly four percent, four point three percent, and we're kind of just trying to get volume on them. Uh, probably take a slightly lower margin on them, and then have our speciality. So we do one to two specials a month. Uh, so it's like the last one was a double IPA. We're releasing a mango milkshake pale ale next week, um, and all we, like we're bringing back that imperial style of whiskey barrels to age it in 
and then we're doing a series of New England peels and IPAs. So kind of have the next three to four months planned out. Um, we buy the cans in pre-labeled, so you kind of have to have things pretty well scheduled. Yeah. Uh, and you also need to, it's a bit annoying because, you know, sometimes you'll want to run a few more kegs off. Uh, so then you'll end up with some pre-labeled cans that are <laughs> gather dust if it's a special, but uh, you just kind of have to take a hit in those. Um, but yeah, it's uh, just kind of focusing on those for the time being. Um, and then we're, we're going to do a breaded, uh, some sort of Belgian farmhouse beer, maybe a sa- breaded saison. Because uh, we have a few old tanks out the back that we're not really using, uh, so we might be able to use them for that. The good thing about our our canning machine as well is that the flow uh, kind of it's just uh, three eight beer line, that, you know, and it's a very short um, flow pass. So we'll be able to can something potentially with you know a sour, and then just change the the, the line out afterwards. Yeah. Um, which makes things a bit easier, um, but yeah, just trying to focus on on pushing the the innovation within Northern Ireland. Sounds like it with your potato saison. <laughs> it's actually quite hard. Uh, there's a few few kind of distilleries have popped up trying to, or you know, producing a, an allegedly uh, potato vodkas and potato uh, kind of gins and stuff. But it's a pretty, it's not the best starch to work with because you can only, I think the max efficiency is about 40 or 50%. So you need, like if you're if you're trying to produce a, a vodka, you need a serious amount of spuds yeah. to, um, I don't know, maybe there are some sort of tiny percentage of, of potato in them. I've never brewed one myself. Like what, how, how do you just mash it like you would your normal grist bill or what, what do you do with potatoes do you like do you yeah, like have to, do you cut them like wafer thin you know no just uh, <laughs> boiling water and then uh, kind of let them steep for a while and then mash them and then add that to the mash uh, is essentially how, how it happens but uh, we were only doing like one one sack so 25 kilos of spuds at a time so it wasn't adding it, contributing a huge amount. Uh, yeah. it's, and it's it's, it's uh, just fermentable sugar, so it's not really contributing much in the way of flavor. We did, like, you get untapped check-ins. People are like, oh, I can really taste the, the potatoes. And it's like, it's the whole point is that it doesn't taste the potatoes. Yeah. Just, just getting the sugar from it. But, uh, yeah, that's, I guess, that's untapped for you. You're not, yeah, well, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> you're, not, you're not roasting the potatoes afterwards, then. <laughs> No, no. Uh, missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. <laughs> um, so, where do you see the beer industry and culture heading in Northern Ireland over the next few years, and what do you hope well, to happen? Like, uh, we're we're planning on uh, kind of creating a brew pub of sorts uh, in Belfast um, within, hopefully, within the next nine to ten months. Um, when you say we, are you talking about just yourself, or are all the yeah, breweries having a whip round or something, or no, just just Bill House? Um, so we the plan will be. So at the minute, Boundary are in East Belfast, and they do a monthly tap room, um, because they are able to borrow a license. You can borrow a license off a pub, uh, use their occasional license. Oh, nice. um, so each pub has fourteen occasional licenses. Finding a pub that's going to let you borrow the license is another thing, but yeah. Um, you can pay a nominal fee and, and get your occasional license and use that, which is what they do once a month. Um, so the plan will be to do something along those lines. Um, so move the whole brewery, new brew house uh, expansion, probably try and get a, a, a quicker canning line uh, and uh, create a, a kind of brew pub in, in East Belfast. And then, uh, to try and uh, the long-term goal would be to have it open kind of during the day or, you know, every night rather than once a month. Um, so the only way to do that at the minute is to get a restaurant license yeah, and then serve food with the, with the drink. Um, so you can't, you know, everything has to be on the same bill. I, I don't know. I'm sure restaurant licenses in, in GB are pretty similar. Um, you know, you can't just come in for a pint. You have to have food. It has to be what the, legislation says that it has to be a main table meal so what constitutes a main table meal is up yeah. to the judge to decide um, but we're thinking probably pizza and beer 
maybe pizza by the slice. So if someone wants to come in and isn't too hungry, they can still have a beer uh, if they just buy a slice of pizza. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think olives or like uh, charcuterie and cheese would cut it. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally, that would be the... the um, and because... Uh, because of the lack of taps, you kind of have to create your own. So, and obviously, getting the higher margin from being able to sell directly to the public would be hugely beneficial. Um, and obviously, for growing a brand as well, and, and being kind of on the high street uh, would be handy because it would be a retail unit. Yeah. Ideally, we're taking it rather than being on an, in an industrial estate somewhere. Um, it just makes things a bit more complicated in terms of planning and. Uh, deliveries and all the rest but uh, so how out of interest how have you managed to fund all this um i mean because i would imagine as well if you're in northern ireland if anyone that might be listening to this and they're thinking i'm going to open a brewery obviously you've got a very difficult road ahead of you but i would imagine that if you went to a bank in northern ireland they're going to be less inclined to loan to you just because of like you say it's so difficult to generate funds through the business like how, how how did you manage to fund a brewery so I was lucky that i had a kind of premises that i was able to convert on the farm right uh, so i was able to i didn't start with any capital at all it was just i was getting a paycheck every month and just saving some from every paycheck because i was living at home at that stage so it was just saving pretty much as much as i could uh and just buying so like one month you'll buy a heat exchanger, next month you'll buy second hand, second hand, like, wow. and so on. So then over the course of eight, nine months, then I was able to kind of have everything ready to go that I could start through. Uh, I, you know, all the equipment I started with, uh, I think the most expensive piece of equipment was probably like 1500 quid or something. Right. Um, so you're, you know, it's, it's, uh, startup costs are pretty minimal uh for me most of the breweries in northern ireland have started in a pretty similar vein because the market's not there there's no capital coming in you know you can't really go to investors because there's no market yeah uh, can't go to the banks because there's no market uh some of the breweries uh have crowdfunded lakata uh up the north coast and boundary are both cooperatives so they kind of uh everybody owns the business um so, like, I didn't really want to go on that model uh, just for the, like, long-term future. I didn't know how it would work. Um, so, kind of just tried to grow as organically as possible. Um, so, we haven't taken on any debt uh, at this stage, although we probably will to try and try and do some asset finance to buy another couple of uni tanks. Yeah. So, you've literally, with those uni tanks, funded it through cash flow and... Yeah, yeah yeah well it's just been saving saving yeah, saving. Yeah. so you, you so, might you might have to put a lot of your paycheck aside for the centrifuge you after <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, like, I don't really don't really thankfully i don't need a huge amount of money every month to get by you know to survive and, and uh i managed to get myself a house before i quit my full-time job yeah um so that kind of keeps things pretty lean yeah uh, just need enough to cover my bills every month yeah which isn't a huge amount um, and then you can put everything else back in to, to kind of grow the business but uh, yeah it's it's tricky although the, the plan is to take on investment so take on an outside investor um, for this expansion and creation of the, the brew pub so that'll be giving away some equity uh, I was toying with going down the, the crowdfunding route um, but I think uh, if we can get the money privately, then we'll probably go that route. Just seem uh, if you know less stress and, and all the rest. Um, but we well we did crowdfund last whenever I went full time. Uh, we did a reward based crowdfunding. Okay. So we raised ten thousand quid to buy a couple of pieces of equipment back then. Um, but that was just the ten thousand was a lot of free beers then ended up probably about five thousand profit maybe yeah um, so you've given away all the all the beer for free which i don't know how i don't know the legalities of that, <laughs> <laughs> better, better not to say too much um last question if, if you could go back in time 
to when you considered opening a microbrewery, um, what would you tell yourself now? I think I would still do it. And if, uh, I had uh, toured with the idea of kind of completely rebranding whenever I got these uni tanks because I knew the, the beer was going to, the quality was going to go up a lot. Um, but then I thought, I'm, you know, it's it's been a struggle, but it's been, you know, proud of, I'm kind of proud of, of having gone through the struggle to, to kind of gradually, slow, very slowly start to move towards the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Yeah. So I thought it's better to keep that, you know, uh, heritage there. So I think I would probably, I'd definitely start the brewery again because it's, it's great fun. Uh, most of the time it's stressful and it has its challenges, um, but it's still, as, as long as the, as long as you can keep the lights on, I think it's, it's better than sitting in an office twiddling your thumb all day. Um, but if I was doing it again, I'd probably try and raise a bit of capital at the start and, and do, you know, get a couple of uni tanks from the start and hit the ground running. But then in your naivety, if you're, you know, transitioning from a home brewer to going pro, you know, you wouldn't know exactly what you're buying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've uh, all been there. <laughs> so, so it's better. I think it's the way I've done it so far. It's kind of been around a way to get here, but you know, you wouldn't have learned all, you wouldn't have made the mistakes along the way. Or if you had, if you know, if you make a mistake and you've a lot of capital tied up, then it's a lot more costly. Whereas if you're not really tying up, you know, there's not a huge amount of risk in term, terms of making mistakes. So then you can learn from your mistakes and, and kind of move on. Uh, and yeah, it's been, I think it's, it's probably been the best way to do it from my perspective. Yeah. So to hop forward to, put intended, um, to 15 years into the future, what what do you hope the legacy of um, Bullhouse Bruco will be? Well, ideally the plan would be to have a nice kind of cushy tap room where there's, you know, able to generate healthy enough margin that you can maybe have 10, 15 people employed, not trying to do a huge amount of production brewing because I don't think that's the way the market's, you know, going, if you look at the States, yeah. all the breweries in the West Coast and so on that have expanded are, you know, finding it very tough. The retail, you know, it's it's tough in retail and brew pubs are the way forward. I think that will be the case in the UK as well. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I was actually, there's a stat I was reading in a book. Uh, this guy in Virginia that started a brewery. It's called Mashed. I've forgotten the, the full title of it, but uh, it's like Mashed a good hobby turned business or something like that. Um, but it's about his story of him starting his, his brewery in Virginia. Um, and one of the stats from his book was that 96% of craft beer in the US is produced by 4% of the craft brewers. Um, so there's 7,000 odd breweries in the States, but only you know only 4% of them are selling 96% of the beer. Goodness. Uh, so the rest of them are obviously just mainly brew pubs uh, that aren't really selling much outside their territory and you know the beer tastes best at source yeah. there's no point small breweries sending beer miles and miles away um, so you might as well try and sell as much of it on site as possible um, so either you know if the brew pub's success then maybe uh, the only way to grow that would be then to create other brew pubs and, and you know branch out that way but be a pipe dream at this stage yeah i mean i guess the american market as well it's i mean america's so big i've got a friend in um ohio i think it is where it's somewhere around there um but he's they've got a brew a brew pub you know and i, th- I think they're like 15 barrel or something u.s barrel so it's you know it's it's it, it's big small for them but it's 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 big for a lot of breweries in the uk but they're one of the only brew pubs for miles and miles around so it's it's kind of like captive audience whereas like you know you sort of said about Belfast or I said about Sheffield or you know London or Bristol or some of the other places in the UK and um, you know there's beer on every corner and it's you know it's it's to an extent I still think it might be quite difficult um, unless you're doing something really unique and really driving that quality forward and your brand forward well, I guess in Belfast, there's beer in every corner, but it's it's, it's mainly uh, harp and uh, Guinness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so I guess trying to be, 
you know, first to kind of be able to do that sort of thing would be an, an advantage. Um, but I do think people would come if the beer, you know, if the beer is good and there's and there's a kind of a community focus to the brew pub, then I think people will come to it. It's just about engaging the community as much as possible. I think that's the the, the key. But uh, yeah, no, some of the breweries in the states can even in small towns of like. 6,000 people, 7,000 people, you know, they're able to run a successful brew pub. But um, I think maybe people over there are really, really supportive of their local businesses and kind of the whole American dream thing, Um, whereas people in the UK aren't maybe as as supportive. Um, So just if anyone in the UK (laughs) wants to try Bullhouse uh, Bruco beer, like... Do we have to come to you guys in Northern Ireland, or, or is, is there any way? So, yeah, unless we went through one of the online retailers, we can't sell online because we kind of got a premises license. Right. Um, so but we, 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 have, we have to come to you. Yeah, you'd have to fly over. And, and, well, you can't even buy it from. So you'd have to fly over and buy it from one of the pubs. Um, so we can't even yeah, come no, to you direct, can we? <laughs> no, you can't come to the brewery, but. Um, but yeah, no, we uh, sent beer over. So it's actually quite good. Most of the breweries in Northern Ireland will group together, and uh, especially for the camera festivals and so on, they'll order a pallet or two pallets of Northern Irish beer. So then we'll all send our you know casks down to one brewery, and then they'll send it over. And so we do that fairly regularly. Um, don't know when we might have be sending some stuff over to Reading Beer Festival, uh, but ideally before then we'll have uh, distribution in the Northwest to start with and then uh, hopefully some further afield in but uh, we need to get some, some more tanks to do that Bro, well thank you for joining us today Willie what's what's the website so if people want to find out more uh, it's just bullhousebeer.co.uk uh, but there's not the website's pretty shy to be honest it's, it's more uh, Facebook and Instagram and so on is where the where it's happening well, it's all happening brilliant thank you no cheers thanks very much for having us on Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Ford Podcast this week. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, follow us on social media at Hot Ford Beers and visit our website hotford.beer for more articles, insights and a range of services aimed at helping you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Until next time, cheers. Right,